Good morning. It is great to be with you this morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter 7, if you'll be making your way there. Matthew chapter 7, talking about a very interesting verse and passage of Scripture. Uh, don't forget all the things coming up in a couple weeks at the, uh, at the Fowler Center at ASU that Sunday night. Man, we'd like to have everybody here. I hope, I hope a lot of our congregations across Jonesboro will be there on that Sunday night. That singing is always great and want to see that place packed out. So if you can be there at all, it'd be great. Uh, two weeks on a Sunday night. And then a couple weeks after that, the Back to School Bash and uh, David Shannon's going to be with us. Uh, this is all these things coming up. Just, just keep them on your radar and, and be sure to p participate and take part because that's what's going to make it uh, so good. So Matthew chapter 7 is where we'll be. I've come to a theory that maybe, maybe you can psychologically analyze people based off of their favorite Bible verse. You ask them what their favorite Bible verse is, and they tell you, and you can kind of read something about them. So I'm going to try that. Anybody willing to share what your favorite Bible verse is? Ja there is no James 125. Yeah, there is too. Yeah. I'm just thinking... With Tony saying that, that's a fake thing, you know. James chapter 1, verse 25 says what? Very good. Okay, so I wonder what that says about Tony. I, um, I'm a little afraid of analyzing Tony ever in any circumstance, even off a of verse. Anybody else? Philippians 4.13, I knew somebody would come up with that one. Uh, uh, there, there, there are all sorts of things you could say, and I don't know how you would read. If you say John 11.35, I'm going to call you a lazy slug, you know, kind of spiritually just pick the, the, the shortest verse in all the Bible for you to memorize and, and flatter people from. There might be people like someone said Philippians 4.13 where maybe they've got a challenge that they're facing and, and because of that, that's their favorite verse. Or, or maybe you've gone through a difficulty and Romans 8.28 is something you're hanging on to and at that moment, that's your favorite verse. Maybe everything's going great for you and it's Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always and again, I say rejoice. And then... You'll find those weird people. At camp a couple weeks ago, we were kind of doing this, and, and somebody, I, I know that they were, they were preparing for this. It's like uh, these events come up where people ask your favorite verse, and you just want to be goofy, and somebody stood up and he said, Exodus 16, 36. And I was kind of like, I wonder what that says. And he says, very heartfelt, this kid stood up and he said, an omer is a tenth part of an ephah. Oh. And, I was, and we all just went, wow, that's weird. I don't know. And then somebody said, Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. 21, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, and Kemuel, the father of Aram. And we all just kind of went, somebody was just doing that to be goofy. But I'm going to tell you this. If we were to do this with the majority of people in the world, tell me your favorite verse. This one, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, would most often come up with people. And it says what? Judge not that you be not judged. 
They kind of throw it out there because if there's anybody who wants to come up and evaluate my behavior or my attitude right now, I want to be able to say to them, you can't judge me. Judge not that you be not judged. But remember, guys, the Bible was not broken out in book, chapter, verse until very, very late. So these verses and the way that you relate them to each other is something rather new. It's a helpful device, but sometimes it can be problematic. I want to share with you a few other passages. First of all, Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Who said this? Should be red letter, which means it's Jesus, right? Okay. Next verse. This is also Jesus from John chapter 7. How complicated is this? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. So it says, do not judge, but judge. It gets even weirder. Okay, keep going. Next one. Are you to not judge those inside the church? Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 5, yes, you do judge inside the church. God will judge those outside, but you expel the wicked man from among you. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, we do judge each other. And in fact, our spiritual condition is really, really important, and we help keep each other faithful by judging each other. That's one of the things we're doing even right now. Next verse. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourselves. You also may be tempted. Here is a judgment call. Somebody, let's say Danny over here, I used him earlier and it worked out well. Danny Wallace is in some weird spiritual condition. He's cheating on his wife or something, right? And you guys know it. The rest of us know it. Who should go after him? Earlier service, they said his wife will bury him in the backyard. No one need go after him. Okay, that's what they said. That's probably true. But let's say you do know and you, you realize you're making a judgment about something he's doing and you're also saying from this verse, I'm one of those spiritual people at church who needs to go after him. There are judgments all over this verse. One more verse, I think. James 5.20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, if one of us wanders from the truth and another one of us brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Whatever Matthew 7, 1 means when it says, don't judge or you'll be judged, you have to to stand it alongside these other verses that say, you know what, your spiritual life depends on holding yourself accountable to fellow believers. How do we put this together? Because it looks to me like the Bible is fighting itself, like it's contradicting itself. Matthew 7 seems to say, don't judge, don't hold anybody in evaluation, don't hold anybody accountable, and the rest of these passages pile up saying, you've got to help each other get to heaven by holding each other accountable. How do you do that? How do we hold these together? Some of this is semantics. I want you to look at all the definitions for the word judge. All these in a dictionary could apply to make a selection, trying to decide where you're going to eat lunch today, you make a judgment call, right? To consider and discern, I'm going to judge between options when I read the news, right? To propose an action, announce a verdict. These last two are what I think Jesus is most talking about in Matthew 7, 1 to criticize and condemn, and to reflect a condemning attitude. What Jesus is saying is, I don't want you to be one of those people who takes great delight in pointing out every little deficiency and every little mistake people make with a sense of joy like you're some kind of policeman. I don't like people like that. Jesus is saying, that doesn't fit in the kingdom of God. It's 
to listen to your preacher who has sermonic brilliance prepared every week and all you do is tell him his tie doesn't match his belt. That's frustrating. And all three of you should be feeling guilty and come forward here in just a moment who tell me that every Sunday, right? Grammar police. There's that verse that says bear with one another. That should become your favorite one. Who cares, right? There's somebody here. Let's see if she's here or not. Uh, uh, they're here or not. Uh, I didn't say gender there. Uh, somebody sent me a card the other day, and here's what it said. Thank you for sending me a card, but your handwriting was terrible. Go to this website and improve your penmanship. That's what it said. She signed the very back, and if she's here, she's turning red right now. I don't see her. I think maybe she's gone. But she sent me a card, and I thought... I send a card, I take the time out to send her a nice card, and she wants to correct my penmanship? That's a violation of Matthew 7, verse 1. That's what he's talking about. This sadistic delight in correcting people over things that simply don't matter much. Or maybe you read the church bulletin, and you can't wait to, to run to Laban and say, you misspelled this word on page 3. Go ahead and do that if you want to, but you become the fodder of conversation all week long in the office. I want you to know that. That's what happens when you just pick out this little nitpicky stuff. That's something Matthew 7, 1 talks about. Sometimes I think I would describe it in a way that would be easy for educators to understand. I went on Facebook this week and I said, what's the difference between somebody who's a tattletale and someone who's really reporting something that's important, bullying or something. You know, kids have a hard time. Sometimes they're very legalistic and rigid in their definitions. And to a kid, chewing gum in class secretly and getting away with it is the equivalent of murdering another student, you know, and so they got a tattletale on everything. What's the difference? And here's finally kind of a consensus of all the responses was this. If you just want to tell on somebody to get them in trouble, that's tattletaling. But if you're really concerned this person could get themselves or someone else hurt, you need to reply to that. You need to report that. And I really think that captures the difference between Matthew 7-1 and some of these other passages. That means in some way we have to balance Matthew 7 with Galatians 6 and James 5. How do we do this? Because we do need to judge one another, church. We're going to be talking about this and finishing the story tonight because we couldn't get to verse 6 in this passage because there are some people we do not treat this way. But I want you to know, if you're a member at Valley View, if you're a Christian who's decided you want to submit to the Lordship of Christ, it means that you're put into a family of people trying to get to heaven together. And one of your roles is you're saying to each other, hold me accountable. That's what we are doing to each other when we're members of this congregation. Hold me accountable to the standard we know, which is Scripture. But how do we do that without violating Matthew 7.1? And there's a few steps you can take. First of all this, check your intent and your attitude. There's a difference between a sincere desire to keep a person out of danger and something that could cost them their soul or hurt them and just informing them of some deficiency that you see. What is most condemned by Matthew 7.1 is that sincere desire to be looked as 
smug and superior. I'm standing over you in judgment because I have something I know about you that's going to make you feel small, right? So maybe I preach to one side of the auditorium more than I preach to the other side. What difference does that make? That's not something that really matters all that much. Maybe the people on this side need the gospel more. Who knows? But the idea is it just doesn't matter. And what James says about this is speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not merciful. He's saying, you know about a lot of things that we gripe about and we complain about and we judge other people about? Just give them the benefit of the doubt and let it go. It doesn't even need to be said. Everyone in here judges everybody else instantly in your minds, and it's okay. Keep it in your mind. Keep it out of your mouth and keep it out of their ear. And just kind of keep it to yourself. You're going to go home and you're going to judge the sermon and you're going to judge what so-and-so said or what so-and-so wore. And all that stuff really just kind of needs to die in the sanctity of your mind. Never needs to come out of your mouth to where it ever hurts anybody else. That's really where it needs to stay. And James just says, you know, we all do these things. They go on all the time. You can't not judge any more than you cannot think at any given moment. But how about this? Give them the benefit of the doubt. And then 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. We just sang it a moment ago. There's this verse in this song. When free from envy, scorn, and pride, our wishes all above, each can his brother's failings hide and show a brother's love. One of the ways we love each other is we kind of know some dirt on each other, but we kind of keep it in our minds, right? So yeah, I may catch Joe Scott sometime getting up here, and he's doing one of those lessons when the young people are conducting the worship service, and he may grab his nose too much while he's preaching or something, you know? Or he may say something that's not, like he, said, he meant chapter 3, and he says chapter 4. Do you know what I'm going to say to him? Not one thing. Not one thing am I going to say to correct him. Why? Because it simply doesn't matter. I love that kid, and I'm going to do nothing to discourage him from getting up here again. So leave that alone. Love covers a multitude of sins. And even if you do have to say something, be very careful with how. We might be right for why, but we can go completely wrong in the how. And that messes it all up. So check your intent and your attitude. What are you trying to accomplish here? Second, watch the standard of measurement. It cannot be just your conscience. It must be a standard of truth that applies to all. Now this is going to make some of you antsy. And there was somebody who violated this in the early service, and I felt terrible, and then I thought, well, no, I told him I was going to offend him. So there's some of you are not going to like this example, but you got to practice Matthew 7-1 on me, okay? I kind of got that covered. That's kind of an insurance policy. Well, here's the deal. We were having a seniors rally, which I mean by senior adults. I'm talking about older people. And we decided, I'm going to have this session where we're just kind of go nostalgic. And I got this dry erase marker board, and I asked all these older people, Tell me some of the changes that have happened in the church since you were growing up and now. Oh man, they had a whole board full of them. Stuff that's different than it is that it was then than it is now. And then I made the fatal mistake of saying, okay, most of these are probably spiritually neutral, but are any of these 
progressions that could cost you your salvation? And this one lady spoke up instantly. I'm sure she's dead now. It was a long time ago. She said, I feel safe. She said, I went to a church the other day that was progressive because they had donuts and coffee in the classroom. We're all bound for hell now. And I wanted to go, but I didn't. I was very good because I sat there and thought, you know, if that's the worst you're worried about for this church or any church, it's in pretty good shape, right? I mean, that is a standard you're using. I know it's right against your comfort zone. I know that's against her comfort zone, and I respect that, but that's not a standard you can use on people. It's just not a standard. I don't, you know what, a pet peeve? I can't stand people who bring coffee into the assembly. Right here, I have a coffee. I cannot go an hour without drinking my coffee, right? I just can't. Now, some of you got it with you. Don't feel guilty about that because here's the deal. That's my hang-up. It has nothing to do with the truth from God. I know the difference. So I look at you, and every time I look at you, I'll think, they're just so unspiritual, right? <laughs> but I'm never going to say it, and I'm never going to treat you different for it, and I'm never going to judge you for it because, listen, that's my opinion. There are some women who still have to wear dresses to church. They can't wear pants. And you know what? God bless them. I love that generation of people, and I love their conviction. They just can't judge everybody on that standard. You cannot use your own personal conscience to judge everybody by. The standard we use is Scripture. And if it's, if it's not a violation of that, you just kind of keep it in your comfort zone, and you kind of keep it in your own privacy of your mind. That's kind of the way it is. And that's not a progressive move of the church. Having coffee in class is not going to condemn anybody, y'all. I mean, really, let's get bigger than that. Now, if somebody is being unfaithful to their spouse, or they're dividing the church, or they're stealing, or they're lying constantly, and, and it's well known, these are dangerous actions, and we must judge, and we must handle that appropriately. Even then, your attitude must be right. But drinking bottled water in class, somebody waiting on the Lord's Supper who doesn't have a tie, that kind of stuff is not worthy of that, wearing tennis shoes to church. Those kinds of things will drive you crazy because all your life you've been taught this. But listen, it is not Scripture. It is not a standard. It's not always clear to us whether this is Scripture or my conscience. So before you say anything, judge it carefully. Standard of measurement must be legitimate. I'll tell you where this gets. It gets crazy like in modesty. I, we all will say in here, we must dress modestly. But listen, we all have a different definition of what that is. Mine at my house is a little more strict than a lot of people here. I noticed just by walking through the halls, their definition is different than mine. This is an area of freedom that Christians must acknowledge, and we must respect each other's liberties. And I'll say to my kids all the time, I know, I know you'll see people at church wearing the, wearing the shorts that hot. I know that, and that's okay. I'm not saying anything about them. I'm saying about you in my house, this is our standard, and that has to be that way. We don't all have to agree. There's areas of freedom here. And we must respect each other's freedom and not judge each other on those standards. Now, let me say a caveat here. If you have colored hair and an earring as a guy and a bunch of tattoos, 
this church will embrace you. That has nothing to do with your spiritual condition. But if you come knocking at my door, picking up my daughter for your date that night, we're going to have a conversation. Because I have a right to have a different standard, and God will love you as his child, but I will not like you as my son-in-law, potentially. I have a right to hold a different standard that way. I cannot stand at the door and judge you that way. Not at the church door, but I can at my door, right? That's what we do. And so God loves them all, and I love you too, but you got to change if you want my daughter. That's all I'm saying, right? Third move is that before any interaction you ever have with another person to share your judgment, proper self-assessment must be done. Somebody shared a quote from George Bush after the early service when George Bush said, when you, when you compare another person's worst behavior to your best intentions, it's always going to come up short. The parable of Jesus in this passage tells this. You have a guy who's got a little speck in their eye, and you've got another guy whose entire eye is swollen and covered over with a patch, and he's going to do surgery on the other guy? That's a little dumb. Having a blind guy do your surgery is just a little strange. And that's what happens when we hold other people to a different standard than we hold ourselves to, and it looks ridiculous. This parable is ridiculous because this action is ridiculous. Bertrand Russell says this, comparing three different people, I'm firm in my convictions. You're obstinate. And Ron over here, he's pig-headed and stubborn. It's the same thing. I give myself a better look than I give him because I, I, I know my motives. I don't know his, and I give him the worst. I've reconsidered. You've changed your mind, but Ron has flip-flopped. It's the same thing, but we're calling it something different because I want to view you differently. Self-assessment is to check my hypocrisy level and to give me a sense of humility. I'll give you a couple of biblical examples where this happens, and it's just so over the top, it's ridiculous. But I want you to remember when David stole Bathsheba from her husband, and had him killed. And he lived with that. He seemed to be okay with that for a long time. And then Nathan comes to him and tells him a story. There's this rich dude, has a lot of sheep. He's got a neighbor next to him that has only one sheep. This one sheep has a name. They eat together. They, you know, he, he has a bed in his room for him. And all. I mean, he loves this little sheep. Well, when the rich man has a friend come over, he wants to kill the fatted calf kind of thing, right? They kill the fatted sheep, but he doesn't want to use one of his many so he steals the neighbor's sheep and serves that as a meal. It makes David furious. I'm going to make a judgment. He's got to die. Now hold it just a minute. You're living with a woman. You killed her husband and slept with her before she was ever ever, he was ever dead. What kind of a... See, you're using a different standard on yourself than everybody else. When you go judging people for a standard, this is weird, y'all, but most often when a preacher has a hobby... When he rides it all the time, it's because he has that struggle. And so he preaches it all the time. And this can happen with us a lot of times. We're most hard on those people who struggle with the same thing we've got. Another story is this one. It's the only time I can ever use this story because you never preach on it. Judah, one of the, one of the sons of Jacob, he has three sons. The first two sons marry this woman. She doesn't have any kids. They're dead. He's supposed to give his third son to the woman, but he won't. And so she's left without any children. 
Back then, that's devastating. And so she decides she's going to take matters in her own hands. She dresses herself completely unrecognizably as a prostitute on the side of the road. And guess who comes along and hires her? Judah himself, her father-in-law. He doesn't recognize Tamar. So he sleeps with her, right? Hires her as a prostitute. And then he hears that she's come up pregnant. Well, you whore, he says. Hold it. She's a whore whose only client was you. How in the world can you call her that when you're the one who paid her? It's a little hard to be a little judgmental here, isn't it? This is what happens when we want to go judge and we haven't assessed ourselves yet. This is where Galatians 6 comes in. Paul says, you who are spiritual, when you see someone struggling with sin, you go and restore them. But before you go, before you go, you do it gently knowing that you could fall to this sin. You do it gently because you want him to respond. You do it gently because you know that his weakness could become yours. Don't you go with this haughty spirit of, I could never do that. Because while he may be an alcoholic, you've never learned to control your anger in 50 years of life. And you're going to say it's different. How? How's it different, really? He can't control himself from drinking. You can't control yourself from blowing up at your spouse. How's that different? In degree. Make assessment first. Sometimes judging is only wrong because of the attitude it's done in. One last thing. Whatever judgment you make must be tentative. Human beings do not have the prerogative to issue a final verdict on someone's condition. You do not make ultimate judgments. We can't see the heart. We don't know the motive. We cannot speak for God. We must not put ourselves on His throne. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I won't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself. I've done nothing wrong that I know of, he says, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I'm not innocent because of of knowing my motives. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You are not God, so do not act like it by pronouncing judgments on people stand for the truth speak up for the scripture label untruth untruth make sure you speak against anything that's an aberration or a compromise of the truth I want you to protest untruth but that's where you must stop you can protest untruth but you cannot you can never go to the point of announcing the verdict of whether someone's going to have heaven or hell or not do not come up and ask me I said this early service and eight people have do not come up and ask me the church of Christ are we the only ones going to heaven 
That is a question no one can answer. It is a useless question. I'm not judge. You're not judge. Our elders are not judge. And if we are not judge, we cannot pronounce. We can give a judgment based on Scripture, but we cannot say the final thing on anybody. God's job's not done. Their life's not done yet. And it's between them and their Creator, not between them and us. So be tentative in any judgment you make on somebody because you simply don't know the whole story. I've done that a million times. I know you have. You've made a judgment and found out you didn't have all the facts. Be careful and be tentative. Do we judge or don't we? Yes, but carefully. And tonight we're going to finish this story because the truth is the first five verses of chapter 7 are about us and the church. Chapter, uh, verse 6 goes on to, to say we cannot judge the world. We cannot go out and judge the world on the same standard. We'll finish that tonight. But if you go and you judge, you must have the right spirit and you must have the right standard. As a child of God, when you come before God and you say to Him, I want you to be Lord of my life, he makes a judgment of you. You cannot be saved the way you are. God judges you and says you stand under judgment of your sin, but if you confess the name of Jesus from your lips, I'll usher in grace, and a whole different standard is used now as you try to abide by the truth of Scripture. And He puts you into a family of people who are going to help you. And none of us, by the way, are going to make it to heaven by ourselves. You need me and I need you. And I'm giving you permission. When you become a member, when you become a, 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 a child of God, you're put immediately into the family of God to help you stay faithful. And here's my understanding. I say to you when I become a Christian, I say to you, please, if you ever see me doing something that violates what we all agree is the truth, we all are willing to stand under submission to Scripture, and if you ever see me violating that blatantly and without repentance, I give you the right, I give you the responsibility, come after me! Don't let me just blatantly go out into that rebellion. Don't let me do that. At least come and give me a shot at holding me accountable. If I am a Christian and I am lost, it's a shame on the whole church for at least not making some kind of effort to come get me. So this morning, you want to get to heaven, I'm going to tell you something. You need to confess your sin and name the name of Jesus from your lips. You need to be immersed in the waters of baptism so your sin is forever washed away. You need to accept your placement into the community of the faithful. And you need to say to them, hold me accountable, church. Hold me accountable. And if I ever start drifting, come after me. You're giving them the right to judge with a right standard. If you've done that, and for some reason you've wavered and nobody's noticed for some reason, this is a public chance for you to make that right. You may only have to do that privately, but if you have to do it publicly, we're available for that. If you've never come the first time, we're available to see you and witness that experience of you taking on the Lordship of Christ. But when you rise up out of that water, not only are you a new creature, you're in a new family, and that family helps you stay faithful. If there's anything that you need to do that's amiss, judge yourself before God and make things right as we stand and sing to encourage you. Amazing.